We never got to slide two. There was a connotation there that if you can talk at this level, of course you can do it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Right? So that sales cycle was about 17 minutes long. But before that, it was 2.5 years the sales rep kept calling on engineering and kept calling on procurement. And uh, once we got to the product manager, the whole cycle changed. And I mean it, 17 minutes. Welcome to the State of Sales Enablement Podcast with your host, Felix Kruger. Insights and actionable advice from B2B marketing and sales experts that share what it takes to achieve sales enablement excellence. There are only few people who can claim that they have grown the revenue of an organization from 24 million to over 1 billion US dollars. Our guest in today's episode is one of them. He is a competitive wrestler, but doesn't need to use the skill to close deals because he has developed a sales method that is trusted by the biggest names in tech. How this method works? Let's find out. Please welcome the president of World Leader Sales, Joe Marone. Joe, thank you so much for joining today. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. It's great to have you here. But for those audience members that haven't heard of you, particularly those in Australia, what is your background and what do you do now? My name is Joe Marone. I'm the owner of World Leaders, Inc., and author of the Smart Sales Methods book. Specifically, I work with B2B technology teams, helping them to penetrate new markets and win more sales. That's awesome. And before you started the business, what did you do then? We started the business about 14 years ago. Before that, I was a senior vice president of a publicly held technology company called Cyber Incorporated. And it was there over that 15-year period of time where I developed a lot of my methodologies and a lot of the approaches that we use today. Yeah, because you, you joined the company really early on, right? Yes. Yeah. So what was kind of like roughly without disclosing any numbers you're not supposed to share, but what was roughly the revenue net level when you joined and what ended up being the revenue level when you left the company? Sure. Roughly 24 million when I started and roughly 1 billion when I left. We went from a privately held regional organization to um, growing nationally, then internationally, and going from uh, privately held to NASDAQ and then to New York Stock Exchange. So we, we really grew the organization. I had some great leaders with me, and we, we really had a great run. Yeah, <laughs> it sounds like it. Yeah. It doesn't sound like it was a fluke uh, over such a long period of time and over such incredible growth. It was very fortunate, and I'm, I'm very proud of the work and the team members that I had with me on that. What services or what products did you exactly sell back then? Information technology, but specific to application software development services. Here, let's see if I can remember it. We build, integrate, and support mission-critical business applications for large companies and government organizations. Excellent. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's incredible growth, obviously, and really staggering numbers. Like you were, you were in a sales leadership position, right? You were a VP of sales, is that correct? I was a senior vice president, had top line responsibility for the entire organization. Yeah, yeah. So I can imagine without having been through the process that it is incredibly hard to scale a sales organization and at the same time maintain the performance level and maintain the quality of the talent that you have within an organization. How did you go about scaling cyber to such incredible heights? Oh, boy. I mean, there were so many different challenges that we went through. There's probably no one answer, but I'll, I'll give you the top two or three things that we looked at that we did and the mistakes that we made. First off, we really focused on 
the business level decision maker. So in every sales cycle, there's a lot of confusion on who's really making the decision. And there's a the technical user, there's procurement, there's coaches, there's internals, there's influencers. We focused on the PL owner of the business unit that we were selling to. So in that case, it was the CIO or the VP of operations that ran technology. That over time, we learned to start sales cycles there, not try to work up to that cycle. Which a lot of organizations do. Oh, I wish I could help everyone to understand that that's the, it's the absolute worst scenario. It's the worst mistake you can make is to start off with a non-decision maker low in a sales cycle and have the belief system that you're going to work your way up to the business level decision maker. When you look at the data behind that, it's awful. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> I guess that's why you're looking at long sales cycles or the belief that high ticket technology purchases have to go hand in hand with long sales cycles, right? Yes. Felix, let's just turn it a different way. And this is uh, some recent discovery. Why don't we really be courteous and businesslike by reaching out to the PL owner with a business impact idea before we set forth a sales cycle in his or her organization, right? They might find that that's courteous. They might find that that's the right thing to do. And what we don't realize as salespeople trying to work our way up is many times it's not welcomed. It's not the right thing to do to begin a sales cycle and waste the time of the members of the team that the PL owner runs. So I find that, and I teach in our book, The Smart Sales Methods, really focuses on have a business impact, right? How are we going to help this customer improve their business results and run it by the business level decision maker? And you can simply say, if this makes sense, why don't we bring your user community in and your financial community in to talk about technical functionality and terms and conditions? But let's make sure that there's a business impact here before we get started. And that is the difference between the top 1% and the 99%. Just that. That's what we learned at Cyber. The hard way. So that means, let's say, the business development reps that really tried to reach out to those senior decision makers, they had to have a really good understanding of the industry trends and the dynamics that really impact the businesses that they were targeting, right? Exactly. If you think about this, if they're able to inform not ask, but inform the PL owner, the business level decision maker on the trends that are happening in that industry, recommended best practices, and then aspirational benchmarks, measurable benchmarks in that dialogue, in that conversation, they're going to get a hearing. They're going to be valued by that customer, but not ask them what keeps them up at night, please. Please don't do that. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you can do better than that. Oh, that's the whole Sandler sales, the whole solution selling model that's been around for 50 years. And I'll just, you said I can make a controversial statement. This will be it. I think Sandler sales, I think solution sales has taken the industry backwards over the last 40 to 50 years. I think it's the worst thing that sales reps can do. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. I think, as Henry Ford said, if I would have produced what the market was asking for, I would have made a faster horse, you know? Yeah. And I strongly believe that your job as a vendor is to move the market forward and to share the expertise that you have and that is contained within your organization. And the expertise that you have should go above and beyond the expertise that your customers have. And I think if, if your job is selling and informing your customers in the right way, you have more than enough time to uh, do your research and actually gain that expertise. Oh, sure. You know, Felix, if that's not our job, what is? 
Think about the, the relationship cell. In 1934, when Dale Carnegie wrote that, How to Win Friends and Influence People, it was good, but it's been around. Every sales rep believes they've got to have great relationships. So we know that's table stakes. If you look at the functionality sale, right, the feature functions, that's worth about a three to five minute video right now. Then there's solution selling and asking the customer what they think they need, even though they're not the experts. So when you look at being the true consultant, and I don't even want to say consultative sales, I want to say consult. I use the term, be the consultant that you wish would have shown up when you needed to make a critical decision. Not consultative selling, consultative. Absolutely. And I think a strong part of that also has to be that you're the first person to say if you're not the right fit, right? And if you can't add the value that the customer is looking for, right? I think that's when you gain the trust and the credibility that you need to be really, truly be seen as a consultant. Sure, sure. Let's say if you're selling outsourcing services and you understand that, a simple look on the internet at any of the um, agencies that are publishing outsourcing statistics, we know that the top reason for outsourcing is simply to enable the customer to focus on their core business. That's number one. Number two is to reduce costs. Number three is to gain access to critical functions. So by simply saying to a customer that, why don't we look at outsourcing all or part of this function so that you can focus your team on your core business, the highest and best use of your people should be blank, not IT services. So it's really having the philosophical recommendation for that customer. If you're selling robotics in a manufacturing floor, you know, the idea would be, can we implement robotics to increase revenue generating throughput while simultaneously reducing operational labor and cost associated with waste, right? Increase revenue, reduce cost. Why don't we look at this, do a technical assessment to see if we can take cost and complexity out of this cycle and replace some of those positions with automation. So again, the highest and best use of your people. So the idea is a sales rep has to have the idea. They have to have the recommendation. If they're waiting for the customer to give that recommendation, they're always going to be behind the curve. Mm, Absolutely. At which stage of the conversation would you bring those things up? Because the idea often is, you know, like you get your foot in the door somehow, and then those kind of conversations are being led further down the track. When do you bring those things up? Well, of course, we have to make rapport, talk about politics, talk about the last game that we all watched, talk about COVID, talk about all those things, and waste a half an hour of time before we can do that. And I'm just being facetious here. We need to bring that up in the first five seconds. Watch this. 1001, 1002, 1003, 1004, 1005. It's a long time to bore someone. So opening up in a conversation to say, Gee, you know, as I look at your organization, I'm wondering if you're open to a discussion about penetrating new markets and winning more sales. I'm wondering if you're open to looking at how we can drive more revenue through your food and beverage manufacturing organization while simultaneously reducing labor and total cost of operations. Is that worth a conversation? That's the discussion, right? We call that in the book, the five by one. In the Smart Sales Methods book, the five by one stands for the first five seconds by one minute to create a business case. So it's a great question, Felix. (laughs) Thank you. I mean, essentially, this is what we're talking about when we talk about sales content, right? Like any sort of information that helps buyers to make better decisions can be considered being content, no matter if it's written, if it's a video, if it's spoken. So 
What's your general advice for salespeople to utilize content beyond that five by one that you just mentioned in engaging prospects throughout the sales cycle? It's everything. They have to not just have the value proposition or the opening statement. They have to have the entire conversation. So when you look at content and sales enablement and marketing and how marketing and sales have to integrate together, what we'll call content, I tend to call trends followed by best practices that associate to those trends followed by measurable benchmarks that we recommend. All of that has to be developed. So that content is the actual conversation, the entire sales conversation. It's the, it's the recommendation that comes from the selling team. So it is a never-ending, tireless effort to build good content and for the salespeople to actually use it. Many, many times you'll see sales enablement or marketing build great content and the sales reps don't bother using it. It's not sustainable. So when you look at good, good content, even if you took it in the funnel of saying, hey, these are the trends, and I like to use Michael Porter's pestle analysis for trends, and then these are the trends that are, that are impacting this industry. From those trends, this is our corporation's best practices recommendation, followed by measurable benchmarks that we believe, customer, you should be following. So that content is, is so important. And technically speaking, how would you recommend sales reps use content if not in a face-to-face conversation? Like, how is it used on social media? How is it used through email? Like, what is your recommendation there? Video. We know that video is 800 to 1,000 times more uptake than the written word. We want to watch, not read. We're a society that likes video. And as a, as a friend of mine humorously said, whenever you've got a whole bunch of rule, unruly children All you have to do is roll up the video screen and they magically watch. So there's something (laughs) about the video. That's right. Yeah. So creating short video that are recommendation videos and a series of them and webcasts and podcasts. So if you look at, at what sales enablement, at what marketing can do to help the sales team, it's creating this never ending series of good video of the business impact videos, not the how, but the what, what needs to be accomplished. You know, I'm a YouTuber. I enjoy it. If we think about Google and YouTube and we just say, okay, let's do what the American law enforcement call an open source investigation. It's just looking at open sources and you constrain it as a content developer, you constrain it to Google and to YouTube. And you're simply entering into those two areas. Again, trends, best practices and benchmarks, and then your product, your industry And quickly, when you get a find, you throw out all the ads, you throw out anything that's more than one year old, and then you look at at reputable names that publish it, consulting firms or watchdog agencies or agencies that, that have credible background, and you begin to develop your content from there. So it is very, very easy. And what's wonderful about this is you can tell the truth to the customer. You can say, I've done some research on your behalf about this topic around the trends, best practices, and benchmarks, and I'd like to spend 30 minutes to one hour providing an industry update for you, from which I believe there may be some recommendations of how to better do something. How do you say no to that? How does an informed, high-level decision maker say no to that? Yeah, that's right. I think as a salesperson, if you, especially if you want to position yourself as a partner and a true advisor to your clients, being a content curator is definitely a way to set yourself apart. 
it's saving customers time. And as we all know, time is the most valuable commodity out there. So if you can accomplish that, you're already paying it forward and offering value before you actually do business. I think that's absolutely great advice. Thank you. Thank you. When I work with teams, I try to stay away from sales type verbiage or sales type terminology, industry advisor, trusted advisor, content curation. And I want to use plain business speak, right? We want to go on a consult with this customer to give them an industry update on what our research findings are. So we sound like the people that we are, (laughs) business leaders, not sales leaders. I found one thing amazingly interesting over the last few years that I'd like to share. Go for it. Okay. So the bottoms up sale is the belief system that the PL owner is going to listen to the recommendations of his or her staff when they're going to make a strategic decision going forward. But the data tells us the opposite. In other words, that PL owner, that business leader, that business unit leader, that product manager, they will look at outside resources before they'll look at their internal staff. They'll look at outside what's going on in the organization to compare what their team is doing. They'll give that more credence than they will what their internal people are doing. Oh, wow. What I've learned at Cyber and at all publicly held companies, both internally and externally, is that there is so much disagreement among the teams that you're selling to. The belief system that that PL owner, that, that final approver, is going to take recommendations from his or her team over an outside organization. Not true. If you look at this book, The um, Invisible Influence by Jonah Berger, from Wharton School Marketing, he explains that 99.99% of our decisions are made through the observation of others and people that we admire. So the reality here is that we, if we do it correctly, we as salespeople, if we're reaching out to the customer with outside industry expertise, they're going to listen to us to compare their internal teams against. We become the benchmark. And that is what the top one percenters in the industry do. And that's what I teach. That's the only thing I teach. Yeah, that's excellent. I guess there's also the component of confirmation bias that decision makers want to be right, just like everybody. And if you have somebody coming in who tells you exactly that you are right with an external source, you automatically have an advantage. Oh, listen, you're touching on something very exciting. We're doing some research today and we look at it around what we call encouragement. And we're developing this model called the encourager model. And what it really means, instead of asking a customer about their pain and what went wrong and why this won't work and sourcing for pain, again, you you know where I'm going with that. Instead of doing that, open up the conversation to say, as I reviewed your facility, I see that you're doing a lot of great things here. And you name those and you identify what's going right. And you're simply going to say, keep doing what you are. I've got two recommendations that I believe that if you embed this into the great work that you're already doing, you're going to be at this level of performance, this benchmark. I believe we can get that done in 30, 60, 90 days and we'll be with you every step of the way. That's the encouragement model of building off of their success, not looking for pain. And when you look at the change curve, you know, the, the John Cotter change curve, the Kubler-Ross change curve, we find that anytime someone gets change, they go in the valley of doom, right? They have uh, rejection, they push back, there's depression, and there's a cycle there. Why don't we bypass that cycle, right? Let's not go to pain. Let's go to encouragement. And we're seeing incredible things going on with that. 
That's awesome. I guess that's also one of the reasons why people starting out in a new position are wanting to create something new and start a new initiative to get to that stage where they can say, I've created this and I'm proud of that. Yes. They want to get to that stage and not continue building what somebody else has introduced. Every human wants to make a difference. Every human seeks approval. Why not give it? There's a, um, a concept around what's called positive trait transfer, meaning that if you give that targeted decision maker, that customer, some positive approval, and it has three things, it's relevant and important to them, you're accurate and you're detailed with it, and it's honest. When you do that and you compliment them and give them approval on that accomplishment, positive trait transfer means that they attribute that trait back to you. It takes one to know one. So you can raise both their esteem, but you're raising your position when you give a well-thought-out compliment of an observation that's accurate, important, and honest. That creates positive trait transfer, and that creates relationships at the level that you want them to be. And how do you handle that working with your clients? Because, you know, at the end of the day, you're selling sales training to your clients. How do you navigate that? Because I can imagine there's oftentimes a lot of room for improvement. Do you achieve that by speaking directly to the CEO and getting by in that way and then being applied to the sales team? Or how do you go about that conversation? Yes, I work with CEOs of B2B technology companies to improve sales results by developing their teams. So I start there. And as I'm working with the team, and I work with the team, I love the virtual approach. So many times I'll be monitoring or sometimes participating in their customer interactions with them, right? Once I take them through a development program. And I like to debrief, and this is an interesting one. This came from Marcus Buckingham from StrengthFinders. I like to debrief successful sales cycles. Where did we learn that we're going to look at a loss and find something good in that? Why do we debrief failure? Let's not do that. Let's debrief success. So when we look at what went right and we debrief that, I start off with, okay, let's talk about what. I say something that my father said to me when I was a young wrestler early on and after I developed. He would watch a wrestling match and I'd get obliterated. And he would say something like, you know, you did a lot of good out there, Joe. There was a lot of good things that happened out there. And he, and he, would, work on the, <laughs> and he would work on the few things that I did well. And so he would say, you know, you did a lot of good out there. And you've got the consolation rounds in two hours. Get hydrated, get rested up, and let's make a few adjustments. So he would follow the encourager model, right? Approval, encouragement, yeah, yeah. and put the suggestion in. Stay off your back, yeah, yeah. you know? And then from there, we can make this happen in the, in the next round of the tournament, and I'll be in your corner. I'm your dad. I get emotional thinking about that. Some of the best times of my life are, are from my dad connecting with me. So when we connect with someone on what they did right first and encourage them to keep, you've got that down, keep doing that. Now let's make these adjustments in this next conversation, and I'll be with you. It's just a lot of fun to do it that way. That's a great background story. I can imagine the equivalent of you getting uh, annihilated in the wrestling <laughs> match. You know, a salesperson doing a bad job is you telling them you did a great, you did a great <laughs> job with the introduction, but yeah, now hydrate and get back on the phone. Hey, you got the meeting, right? Okay, so they're showing up is halfway there, right? So we can always. That's right. So my mom said, right, if you can't find something good to say about someone, don't say anything at all. So those two things were helpful. There's some humor in that, but the reality is. We know that through Marcus Buckingham's studies, strength finders, that we respond better 
to positive than negative encouragement. Also, uh, Teresa Amabil from Harvard Business, the progress principle. So these, this data far is wider than my understanding. It just means that when we give good encouragement, honest encouragement, we open up the person's ability to listen to the recommendation. When we start dwelling on the negative, that person's in their head and they're not comfortable listening. Just that. Mm. I want to go back to something that you said in the beginning about reducing sales cycle length in conversation with senior executives. And in your book, you touch on a really interesting concept that you follow, which is the SMART proposal. What is that all about and how does it help shortening the sales cycle? Oh, thank you for asking. The SMART proposal is a proposal. We call it the reverse proposal or the backwards proposal. It's a one-page proposal if you print on, on both sides. And it starts off with the business objective, how that customer is going to make money, save money, reduce order to collections time, improve profitability, meet compliance. So it's a short statement and it's a tied right to the business level decision maker that we learned this from. The alternate strategies considered is the next component, right? Doing nothing is an alternate strategy, keeping the work internally or looking at a third party. Then the solution overview, that's page one. And now you've got the business case on page one. Page two is the risk mitigation plan around implementation. The top of page two, which is Every time we buy something, there's five risks. There's contractual terms and conditions. There's on-time delivery, performance, reliability, and the risk of obsolescence. So we, we chart out that risk and what we're doing about it on the first top of the page. And then there's why we're uniquely qualified, product superiority, customization to need, technical integration, industry expertise. And the last part is we call the C, S-E-A, and that's skills, experience, and accomplishments of the team providing it. So when you look at this, this proposal over years, and this, this was started at Cyber, we found that we win seven out of 10, greater than 70% of our deals are won using a smart proposal. But also, and this is the most important part, Felix, is that the step before that is what we call a business technology fit assessment is what's required to build a smart proposal. And what do you do during that assessment? So we get with the business, the technical user, and the procurement organization, and we ask 11 questions. And that is where everything goes well or not. Basically, what we're saying is our proposal can only be as good as our business and technical understanding of the organization. So we're saying we'd like to get the PL owner in to discuss and give ideas around the business improvement. We absolutely want to get the technical user involved to talk about the functionality, usability, reliability, interoperability of the system. Obviously, we want procurement in there to talk about terms, conditions, pricing, discounts, those kinds of things. Can we get this team together? And we ask 11 questions. And those questions start off with describing the business impact. What is the end state from a business improvement? The second question is my favorite one because it's a question that all salespeople are terrified to ask. We ask, what are the risks and disruptions that could occur and how do we mitigate them? Third question is, why now? Why do we need to do this now? Why shouldn't we wait? Fourth question are the ramifications of delay. The fifth question is around what solutions have previously been considered that we should understand before we put ours together. What have you thought about internally? What third parties? What have you learned? Because we want to understand what's going on, not compete with it. And the list goes on. They're, they're in the book. So you can see it comes all the way down to the acceptance criteria of each stakeholder. So that fit assessment process, when you look at compressing sales cycles, there's the, we use the term survey, assess, align. Survey a customer, 
for interest or need. We believe calling on an OEM customer, on a product manager for an OEM customer, we believe that by implementing our light source into your scientific microscopes, that this microscopic camera can drive more reimbursement in the hospital by 3x, which means it generates more revenue and improves more patient outcomes. But more importantly to you is it will be the the microscope of choice among Canon, Minolta, those. We believe we can enable you to be the number one seller by just changing and using our light source. That's our hypothesis. That's what we believe we can do. Is it worth a conversation? So we're surveying for interest or need. Of course. Mm. So that's the first part of it is the survey for interest or need. The second part is why don't we get together to determine feasibility, potential return, and if we're the right fit. So that's the fit assessment. From there, at the conclusion of that, we'll say something like, okay, we believe we've got enough here to put together a proposal. Why don't we meet on Tuesday of this date? It should be 15 to 30 minutes, and we'll walk you through our business objectives, the alternate strategies considered, the solution overview, the risk implementation, risk mitigation plan, the solution, why we feel qualified, and the price. How do you say no to that? You ask yourself, because when you build methodology, you always build it on the idea of how does someone say no to that? What I learned as a competitive wrestler is I don't learn just what is a good move. I learn how do they counter that move? What is the counter to that move? It's like chess. So when, you, when you're talking to a business-level decision-maker, about improving a business result. And again, take that all the way back to content, take that all the way back to sales enablement. All of that data has to be strong, accurate, and impressive. When you've got that and you're simply saying, why don't we get together to determine feasibility, potential return for the right fit? We'll let you know if we think it can be done. Then the last part is the uh, smart proposal. So, I mean, that sounds like it all makes sense. But what happened to the 50-slide slide deck that the average salesperson takes to a big sales conversation? Like, what happens to that slide deck in that context? Sure. I love that question. What happens to the 50-slide deck? First off, try to go to the last slide that has the conclusion and put that in the front. Start there. Okay. Put, open the conversation with the conclusion, right, with the end state, right, Stephen Covey. So put that impact statement there and then take that slide from 50 to about four. The business impact. So going back to that scientific microscope, we simply put on the first slide a picture of their microscope. To the left of it, we put how many procedures it can do. To the right of it, we showed it can do four times that. We said X versus Y. And below that, we had their competitors. And we said, our job here is to have the number one microscope in the industry based on the hospital's ability to use it to solve more patient problems and drive more reimbursement. That was slide one. We never got to slide two. (laughs) Right. Let alone slide 50. Yeah. We never got to slide two. There was a connotation there that if you can talk at this level, of course you can do it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Right. So that sales cycle was about 17 minutes long. But before that, it was 2.5 years the sales rep kept calling on engineering and kept calling on procurement. And uh, once we got to the product manager, the whole cycle changed. And I mean it, 17 minutes. That's incredible. It's really getting to the core and the essence of what the, what the sales conversation is about, right? Yes, yes. It cuts out, as you said, the endless small talk about weather and the sports game <laughs> and the 50 slides, and you get straight to the point. I love it. Oh, listen, you know, if you think about it, there's a, an identity crisis that many B2B technology salespeople are having today because 
when you look at how the Amazon effect has changed and enabled so many customers to now buy through the internet, they can find quickly the feature functionality, the capabilities of your technology and your competitors and do that comparison before they talk to you. So our job isn't just to talk about the technology. The millennials coming up, they don't want the relationship. They don't even want the relationship with each other. That's another story. So when you look at it, the focus really here is to teach a customer how to improve their business results. That's what the modern day technology sales team is about, right? So it's marketing, sales, sales enablement. They should all be on one page. We should all be able to answer this simple question. Why does a client need our services, number one, need them from a business impact point of view? Not because the server is outdated and it's not going to be supported by the manufacturer, but why do they need our services from a, how will that improve their business results? Oh, we're going to take them from a antiquated, hardware-based, depreciating asset-based, and we're going to remove that server and take them to the cloud, reduce their cost by two-thirds, and open up so the team can work from anywhere. That's the business impact, right? All their knowledge users from their clients, their internal users, and their suppliers can all work through the cloud takes time and cost out of it. So that's the business impact. We always have to focus in on the business impact. So when you're looking at this, why do clients need our services? How do we impact their business? And why should they buy from us instead of our competitors? And if we can't answer those questions, or if we have questions like, well, people buy because they trust me, because I've got the best product or the lowest price. My favorite one, people buy from me because we don't have the best products or the lowest price, they buy because I'm so nice. It's a rhyme. We don't have the best product or the lowest price, so they buy from me because I'm so nice. No, people buy because they need to improve their competitive advantage technology that's going to enable them to improve their revenue and reduce their cost. That's right. Unless you buy new shoes, then that really comes into play. And let me tell you (laughs) what I'm absolutely not an expert in is anything to do with consumer behavior. I don't (laughs) understand why people buy what they buy from a, I understand business behavior, B2B technology. Don't ask me about why people buy the kinds of shoes or the kind of music or what's going on in the world. That's, I'm fascinated <laughs> with it, but <laughs> that's another level of, of intelligence that I don't have. Yeah. <laughs> so from your point of view, we have a lot of listeners that want to enable sales better, that are sales enablement professionals. What's your advice for those people, for their roles and how they can make a greater impact when working with sales teams. Sales enablement team members can first one is think higher of themselves and understand that they're far more important than they think they are. They are the most critical element of the organization. Salespeople will come and they will go, but sales enablement is a corporate asset. So understanding also from the organization, invest in sales enablement because it is what it is. It says it enables the sales team to work. So there's your core investment. Let's start from a linear point of view. Sales enablement really can, single most important thing is to get accurate and clean and deliverable data for the selling team. In other words, when I audit a database, which no one wants to do, when I audit a database of a selling organization, their CRM tool or their database, it is terrible. They do not have a clean database of the business level decision makers where the data is clean enough where there's actual deliverability. So 
Content is not king. Data is king. Having a complete and accurate list of your future customers where it is deliverable. And when I mean deliverable, I mean when we're talking about getting through spam filters and getting through where that data can be delivered, sales enablement needs to look at that first. Why? Here's why. When I audit a pipeline and I look at at a selling team and I ask a simple question, I look at the pipeline closest to close first. Is this our business level decision maker? Is this the final approver? Greater than 87% of the time, we're not working with the right decision makers. We don't have that person in our data. We can't send out communications to them. We can't invite them to our webinars. We can't provide good video to them because we can't get to them. So one obvious thing is good, clean data. That's number one. Using third-party tools for cleaning data, for cleansing data, is an important thing. And that has to be done frequently. So that's number one, sales enablement. Number two is really around the business case. What is the business case to that business decision maker? And working with marketing and doing the laborious research of doing what we called open source investigations of getting that data down into trends, best practices, and benchmarks. And that's got to be for every product, and that should be updated on a quarterly basis. Trends change. Look at America. Last year, the trend was to make America great again, and it was all about capitalism. This year, with our new president, it is more about equal diversity environment. When you look at those drivers, they changed industry. So being able to understand that on some level of quarterly basis, that the trends change, and that's a great thing because it allows us to give our customer a quarterly update on here's the trends that the pestle trends that changed in your industry and we'd like to give you a brief update when sales enablement can look at the political economic social technological legal environmental changes and write good i want to call it content i want to call it trends and write that for the sales team and put it in a way that it's understandable now we've got the right data the right decision maker, and the right information to them, you really can get extraordinary results from ordinary salespeople if sales enablement just embrace those two things. So it really is about sales enablement. And sales enablement is a corporate asset that should never go away and just needs to be better looked at. Mm, Absolutely. I think America has a great advantage or the Anglo-Saxon countries in the world have a big advantage because it's more established there. I had a lot of conversation with sales and sales enablement leaders in Europe in particular, and they all confirmed that the closer the organizations that they deal with are associated with the UK, Australia, Canada, and the US, New Zealand, the more likely they are to have more advanced sales enablement functions. And I think there's a lot of catching up to do in other parts of the world. And I think that's a great opportunity for the sales enablement community as well. Yeah. If ever there's an opportunity, Felix, to do some pro bono work, I'd be happy to do that kind of work because think about this. In the technology sale, the majority of the technology that's being sold is either going to improve our food system, our financial stability, healthcare outcomes, environmental outcomes. Technology is going to cure the world of all the things that were going on today. So by being focused on B2B technology companies, we're going to see this world become a a safer and more financially stable place. I've seen it. You know, the patents are out there. When you look at what is in the patents in each of these countries, they're there. It's just that their selling teams can't sell it. So the, the first chapter of our book is nothing happens till something is sold. You can have the greatest technology, 
But if your selling organization can't do that, that's important. And that is all around sales enablement. Probably more important than sales management, believe it or not. Well, on that note, Joe, I only have two more questions, actually. Question number one, which has been burning all along, the wrestling that you did, was that the Olympic type or was that the WWE type? <laughs> it was, um, I started off in high school and college as collegiate wrestling in the United States. And then I ventured into freestyle, which is Olympic style wrestling, what you'd see on the Olympics today. And then as I began coaching and got later in my life, there's what's called beach style. And you see that all around <laughs> the world. That's on sand on a beach. So if, right. you, if you get a chance to look that up. So at age 45, I was coaching, competing and coaching, obviously, through college and through my career and, and won many things. But at age 45, I made this comeback on the beach. And I won the North American championships and I won the world championships wow. in the beach style. And I did that till I was 49. That was just an incredible scenario. And it was a great learning experience. So thank you for that question. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> so Joe, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for sharing your wealth of knowledge. I really enjoyed our conversation as I did enjoy your book. So I would encourage anybody listening to this podcast, having a look, we'll put that in the show notes. And lastly, Joe, where can people find you online if they want to connect, talk more about sales and tap into your wealth of knowledge? You know, reach out to me directly. Don't go to my website. So my email address is jmorone, M-O-R-O-N-E, at worldleadersales.com or text me 585-732-5666. I answer all texts live. I have it on the back of our book because it's a form of research. I love to have these conversations on a daily basis, talking with salespeople. It enables me to keep my research current, and I'd love to hear from you. Excellent. Thank you so much, Joe. Thank you, Felix. Enjoyed the conversation. Keep doing what you're doing. You've been listening to the State of Sales Enablement podcast. To ensure you never miss an episode, subscribe in your favorite podcast player. If you want to learn more about sales enablement, you'll find a growing number of articles, videos, and templates specifically for enterprise technology businesses at krugermarketing.com slash learn. That's K-R-U-E-G-E-R marketing.com slash learn.